Hello? Hello. Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? My keyboard. You're typing? Well, I'm getting ready to listen to a podcast. Do you like podcasts about scary movies? Uh-huh. What's your favorite podcast about scary movies? Um, now playing. You know, the one hosted by Stuart, Arnie, and Marjorie, who watch and review all movies in a series? Is that the one that's now reviewing the entire Scream movie series? Yeah, with the ghost face killer. I haven't seen that movie. The podcast has spoilers and harsh language, so you should watch the movie before you listen. Okay. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? Because I want to know who I'm looking at. Today we're discussing Scream 3, starring David Arquette, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox Arquette. Mm. We, we needed another Arquette actress. The, the Arquettes <laughs> just weren't grandiose enough. There were like 18 of them. I guess they needed a mannish one after... <laughs> Alexis. Alexis, yeah. I love Alexis Arquette. Because Courtney Cox is more mannish than Alexis. He's a woman now, that's why. Patrick Dempsey. Patrick Dempsey? Donald Miller. Jenny McCarthy, Parker Posey, and Dion Richman. Directed by, once again, Wes Craven. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. And Marjorie. And whereas Scream 1 and 2 came out pretty back-to-back, here Scream 3 came out in the year 2000. You know, we were kind of complaining in Scream 2 that they didn't take their time, so that's encouraging. I think that's a good sign that... They realized that to put it out in 98 would have been the wrong move. Yes, but I think that they would have liked it out in 98. As I kind of alluded to in the first one, it seems like by part three, everybody'd gotten a little big for their britches. Nev only agreed to return for 20 days, which is why she's absent for half the film. What the (laughs) hell was she doing otherwise? She was actually filming another movie at the same time. She had a lot of films coming out around this time. I haven't seen any of them. She was doing Drowning Mona that summer. Plus, she was in Panic. She had three movies come out in 2000. She had four in 98. She was really busy, plus a full-time actress on Party of Five. Wes Craven didn't want to come back. He only agreed to come back as part of a deal that must have been part of the reason why Miramax is no more, is because they got Scream 3 and Music of the Heart. Yeah, he got something out of this. Something that only he wanted. Yes. Something they didn't want to give him. (laughs) Something that would have in no other way come to alignment. It reminds me of, like, Christopher Reeve barely agreeing to do Superman 4, and he wouldn't even, like, work out for the part. Yeah, I mean, and who could blame them? I mean, if he's always wanted to make something that wasn't non-horror related, doing Screen 3 was his best shot at getting that pet project. It happens frequently in Hollywood. Kevin Williamson was off doing his directorial debut of Teaching Miss Tingle, and so he did not return to write the script. It was written by Aaron Kruger. I just love that Wes Craven works with Kruger. Yes. (laughs) It should be said, actually, that he did turn in a draft of the script that was rejected, that he wasn't able to continue working on it. But 
keep in mind, this was his trilogy, and he alleged, much like I think George Lucas alleged there was, what, nine chapters of Star Wars all in his head? Twelve, nine, or six, depending on the day. <laughs> Williamson claims that he always envisioned this as a trilogy, which makes one ask, then why didn't you do the third one? He kind of did, but he didn't finish it. He's not given a writing credit. I understand that they kind of went off his outline, but he was too big for Scream now. This, the thing that made him famous, he's leaving behind. And even Liev Schreiber was too busy to come back as a regular, making him our initial offing. The only people who wanted to be here, the only ones, were David Arquette and Courtney Cox, newly named Arquette, because they were newlyweds. They'd met on the set of Scream, dating during Scream 2. They were looking forward to spending the time together. And so Dewey and Gale get the spotlight now. And it changes everything. I, I've got to say that I've always said that when Dewey is a part of the story, it becomes comedic. The horror element goes out the window. And I think that's true for the entire Scream 3 now. Yeah, it, it definitely changes the whole tone. We're going to talk about it as we go through the movie. But I, say, I think it's telling this was a February release. And usually things that come out in February aren't all that great. <laughs> it's when they kind of shit films into theaters. Well, I'll put it this way. It's when they know they don't have a summer blockbuster or an Oscar contender. They put everything that doesn't fit in those two categories out in spring. It's spring cleaning, you know, <laughs> you just dump it. And yes, this was the best shot it had for being a blockbuster. It was. It did open to huge numbers. But did it meet up the quality of the last two? Well, I guess we can get into that. How about a plot summary before we dive into the movie, Arnie? In the time since Scream 2, Liev Schreiber's Cotton Weary has parlayed his infamy as a wrongfully convicted death row inmate into a gig hosting a low-rent Los Angeles talk show, as well as cameoing in Stab 3, the completely fictitious third installment of a slasher movie series once based on his life. But in a town notorious for not returning phone calls, Ghostface gives Cotton a ring while he's gridlocked on the LA freeway to offer him the part of the opening death in his sequel to the Woodsboro and Windsor College murders. Cotton races home to save showering girlfriend Christine, but Ghostface tricks them with a voice manipulator and both are killed. L.A. police detective Mark Kincaid, played by Patrick Dempsey, pre-McDreamy, thinks there might be a link between Cotton's death and the Stab 3 production, so he approaches Courtney Cox's Gail Weathers, now an entertainment news journalist, to snoop around the set for clues. There, Gail is reunited with Dewey, who's been brought in to Stab 3 as a consultant, and is irritated to see him romantically involved with the bitchy actress playing Gail in the movie, played by Parker Posey. Another Stab 3 cast member is murdered, and Gail and Dewey conclude that the new ghost face is picking off his victims in the order they die in the screenplay. The killer is also leaving photos of a B-movie actress named Rena Reynolds at each crime scene. Rena was the stage name of runaway teenager Maureen Prescott, Sidney's mother, who slept her way through Hollywood to land bit parts in movies by legendary horror producer John Milton, who just happens to be producing the Stab films. Meanwhile, Nev Campbell's Sidney Prescott has been having nightmares of her mother and Ghostface while hiding out in a high-security cabin in the Northern California woods. When she gets the news about the Stab 3 murders, she realizes that coming to Hollywood and facing her past is the only way to find inner peace. She shows up at the police station and immediately bonds with Detective Kincaid. Production on Stab 3 is halted when more actors are killed. Disgruntled director Roman Bridger, played by Scott Foley, invites Gail, Dewey, and the surviving Stab cast to his producer's legendary Hollywood mansion for a drunken birthday bash. Ghostface crashes the party, kills most of the guests, and kidnaps Gale and Dewey, who are used to blackmail Sidney into coming to Milton's mansion. Ghostface reveals himself to be Roman, Sidney's long-lost brother and bastard son of Rena Reynolds. Roman had tried to reconnect with their mother in Woodsboro four years ago, but Maureen shunned him for her legitimate Prescott family. 
Enraged, Roman found Billy Loomis, the son of Maureen's secret lover, and directed him and Stu to commit the bloody rampage from the original Scream, starting with the murder of Maureen. The final fight ensues, with the killer escaping danger multiple times through the use of a bulletproof vest and the voice manipulator, but Sidney finally stabs Robin in the chest, three times naturally, and Stewie finishes him off with a bullet to the head. Back at Sidney's woodland cabin, Dewey proposes to Gale, while Sidney decides to leave the door open for a potential love affair with Detective Kincaid and another sequel as credits roll. So let's start, as we always do, with the Scream series, talking about that opening death. Poor Cotton. I never really had much much use for Cotton. You prefer synthetics? <laughs> I feel like he was always kind of a functional character. I feel like, he, in some ways, he isn't big enough to be the opening kill for me. I, I feel like, eh, all right. Well, at least he's out of the way. But <laughs> it doesn't have the same iconic appeal as Drew Barrymore. Well... I say he's better than Omar Epps. In our last podcast, I said they should have killed Gale in the start, something I stand by. But here, by bringing him back and making him the opening kill, it does again throw down that no one is safe. But that said, man, I almost think they shouldn't have gone with an opening kill because the moment the movie starts, the phone rings and Cotton picks it up, you know that Cotton's not going to be in the 11th minute of this movie. Yeah, but he also didn't have a huge part on screen in the other two so it's not that much of a surprising kill. Yeah, he did help Sydney at the end of part two, but I mean, he wasn't like killing Sydney. Randy was a bigger shock than Cotton. I don't think they've ever been able to duplicate killing Drew. And maybe that's the whole series as it's been trying to get back to that first 10 minutes of the movie. But I feel like it's a natural progression. If we originally started it at a small town and then we went to college, it kind of only makes sense that Cotton would now be here in Hollywood talking on a car phone of all things. (laughs) And in L.A. traffic, of course, gridlocked. I did like the setup. I don't know. I mean, I don't like the Hollywood setting of this whole movie. I'm just going to throw that out now. I think it becomes too meta. In the first movie, we had a horror film starring people who'd seen horror films. But now, this has almost devolved into self-parody. Donors who've listened to our Jaws 3 podcast know that they almost went this route with Jaws, right? Wasn't it Jaws 3 People Zero going to be the title? Sure. And it seems like they decide to go this way with Scream, where by having it all set in Hollywood and having it be on the set where they're making that movie, it's almost like they're delving into scary movie territory instead of sticking with Scream. And it's becoming too obvious and too Wes Craven's new nightmare for me. Mm. I think sometimes it's to the movie's advantage and sometimes to its detriment that it's gone here. But it seems logical. If the whole series is about talking about horror movies, we start with the teens that are influenced and now we're looking at the industry that creates them. It seems fitting. It seems like a final chapter to a trilogy. Part of my problem is, though, I understand Hollywood has effects and all. But let's talk about this conceit that the killer can now do any voice because he has this little magical box. It's the new millennium. There's all kinds of magical devices. You know, as a podcaster, I get a lot of requests from people who ask me how to do this. They think there's a tool out there that will let you just impersonate any voice perfectly. It doesn't exist. This is why Hollywood has this entire legion of tremendously talented voice actors and mimics who are able to do other people's voices. And I just, for a movie that has always been based in reality, this little sci-fi twist and changing of the killer's motif did not work for me. 
Okay, I can see where this is going, and donors from last year's Seed of Chucky probably could have anticipated this. I like this conceit. I think that this is fun. I think that we needed to spice up Scream. Two was kind of weak, and we needed to have new devices and new things, and I definitely feel like instantly this is a step forward from the last movie. Really? You do? Yes, yes. You like this little Star Trek voice synthesizer device? I love the fact that it starts out with a sexy woman that Cotton likes to play into. And we learn so much, again, that he's playing different women. He's being a skis like we always knew he was. And we know he's going to get it for it because we know that voice is going to be Ghostface. Just by the formula, it dictates that he is talking to the killer. And that didn't bother me so much. What bothered me is the way it kept getting used later, where he's talking to Christine on the phone. But no, it's Ghostface. Or later, we're talking to Dewey on the phone. But no, it's Ghostface. I understand it's mixing it up, but it just took this film into a bit more of a sci-fi realm. They brought the telekinetic in. I'll give the movie the conceit that there's a psycho killer, but it took it to a different plane than the other two had existed on to me. No doubt about it. When you compare it to Scary Movie, I do feel like it has now become comedic. And I think when you mention the fact that Nev is no longer the focal point and that Dewey and Gail are, that's a big reason why. It's just by natural inclination of the characters now leading the story it has to be goofier it's no longer scary movie thank god they didn't call it scary movie back in the day because this certainly isn't scary movie three but yet it is (laughs) but i certainly wasn't screaming either except in frustration at times I like this opening, guys. I think that it's effective. The way that they're plotting him trying to get home to his girlfriend, the way that she's, you know, thinking it's a a sex game. She's like, is this this another one of your stab games? All of this, I, I feel like it's clever again. I feel like it's smarter than the last movie. And I do attribute a lot of this to having a new screenwriter who seems to want to be here and has the time to do it right. One thing about this death uh, that stood out to me, in the last one, they made a a particular point of when Sarah Michelle Gellar was killed, cleaning the blade. And Arnie, you made the argument that, well, that's the screen killer. No matter who's behind the mask, they always got to do that cleaning the blade move. The MO is all gone now. Leif Schreiber dies without the blade cleaning shot. He isn't strung up. They're not trying to emulate that. So are you still going to hold tight and say that this is the same thing, that they're just always going to do it for Ghostface? Maybe enough people like you got on the internet and bitched at them. How could he know that, that this time Wes decided not to? (laughs) Maybe. But one of our listeners did point out that Ghostface did clean the blade in front of Sydney in Scream 1, explaining how you're right. If the Mm. killer had done his research in Scream 2, he could have known about the blade. And I guess in Scream 3, since Roman wasn't trying to copy something, he was actually the originator. He didn't need to clean the blade. I don't know. I'm reaching. I I guess it's inconsistent. I will say that that is the best kill of the entire movie, though. Cotton's? Yeah. Or Christine's? Both. The whole thing. That is probably the best one because the others are just comedic and not even really comedic like laugh out loud funny, but just I guess lame is just a better word. You know what? As this is the only character to return who dies, this is the kill that impacted me most because all the rest are just new characters. And I understand, you know, we've gone through Friday the 13th, we Halloween Nightmare on Elm Street. Every horror movie gets its new batch of meat. I understand that. But I think, Stuart, as you always say, I identify with the killer. So I don't care that it's a bunch of new meat because I'm there for Freddy. I'm there for Jason. I'm there for the killer. Here, 
the killer is different every time. It's a whodunit. So now the movie has to be carried far more by its cast of meat. And I don't think Scream 2 or Scream 3 has pulled off a dynamic set of victims slash suspects the way Scream 1 did. That's probably true, but let's give Craven a little props here. He's directing better. This setup and this opening is better. The suspense of when he gets home and he can't find her, all of these things are better than Omar Epps getting a knife in the head and Jada Pinkett sitting next to the killer in a crowded theater. They just play better. I did kind of think that the suspense was there, but for a different reason on this opening hill, because I knew they were both going to bite it. That's been true for every Well, maybe not Drew Barrymore. We still might have thought she gotten away the first time we saw it. But we've always kind of known that the killer is going to do what they do here. That's formula. Exactly. But see, I didn't have any real suspense from it. And yes, it was better than the movie theater scene. I thought they were going to go a different way and maybe take on a different direction because when his girlfriend got out of the shower, she dried off and then she walked down the hallway and she was leaving puddles in the hallway. And I thought maybe they were going to set it up for like a final destination type kill and maybe Ghostface Killer got a little more creative than just his knife and voice. But it turned out just to absolutely amount to nothing. She slips. Yeah. (laughs) That's what it was setting up is that she slipped. Yeah. Whereas we thought, because she was leaving pools of water off her feet on a hardwood floor. Bitch deserved to die for that alone. Yeah. (laughs) Bath mat, honey. Bath mat. I thought there was an electrocution in her future. Yeah, I did too. Oh, okay. Still, you guys aren't going to give me this. This opening seems pretty good. I'll I'll give you it's better than two. Yeah. But I'm not going to give you that it's pretty good because I just, I knew where it was going. You know what I would have given this is if they'd let Cotton live. If Cotton had survived and they played with my expectation. Because you know Cotton's going to die, you feel like you can't be invested in the scene in the way it's set up. Not just that. If it had been more suspenseful, it felt very cliche to me. It didn't feel like there was anything original with Drew. You know, even watching it again, you know Drew's going to die. But the way it's set up, you feel for Drew. You feel bad for Drew. Here, I kind of feel bad for Christine, but I don't really get to know her in any way other than she's being probably cheated on. And Cotton... I just I don't think when he gets home, it becomes every horror movie ever, which is I mean, Scream's trying to do that, but it's not doing it in a smarter way. Is he in behind this door? Oh, we're going to have the false scare. And now he's going to jump out. It's every slasher film ever. And it's not any better than them. Well, you know, I'll go on this tack. You do like Drew in the original and I did not like Cotton ever. So I think that's actually what colors the difference between Scream and Scream 3 is Scream these were a bunch of people that I more or less liked, and I watched them get killed. Screen 3, these are contemptible people who, on some level, I'm kind of glad they're getting it. And Cotton, I'm kind of glad he's a jerk. You know, you can just tell by his billboard that his show is just <laughs> smug and awful and that he is not true to his girlfriend. And he's just, you know, we know that he is a morally suspect character. And while that may not mean I would in reality wish him to be knifed to bits in his apartment, I'm not going to cry for him either. I just wish it was scarier. And, you know, when listening to the director's commentary, the whole reason they added Christine to this scene is they didn't feel a guy alone in an opening is as scary as a girl alone in an opening. And while that's sexist, I think their instinct was right. I think Cotton, he's a big muscular dude in this one, right? I mean, Leah has been working out and I just didn't get a sense of danger 
for him. I mean, I knew he was going to die, but I didn't feel. But it's always been a couple. I mean, that's consistent to the formula. It was always Drew and her boyfriend. It was always Jada and Omar. It's it's got to be two if they're going to keep the consistency. True. And I keep forgetting Steve was even there. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it was the probably the least interesting kill of the entire series. But yeah, it just this scene was fine. I hadn't turned on the movie at this point. I was fine with it. I was a little sad to see Liev out because I liked the energy he brought to Scream 2. But I thought the opening was fine. I didn't think the opening was great. But they missed a huge opportunity because the way they built up the Cotton Weary character in one, and then he just turns out to be a fame-hungry whore in two and three, and ended up with his talk show 100% Cotton. And because his character doesn't pay off, he's made to be ominous in the first one. Like, oh, he killed Sydney's mom, but then he was innocent. And he could have been a much better villain or even just, you know, a shady character. And here he's just a fame hungry guy. I think that's the moral of Scream is that if you get caught up in the BS, if you live too much inside a movie, you're going to pay for it. I mean, I, I think in some ways it's a telling omen to the whole reality world we're living in now where people are, you know, on podcasts trying to be famous. <laughs> Ouch. <They're> ho- <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, am I being too self-referential? <laughs> now let's go on with the movie. Let's talk about the other characters, these new ones. I don't even remember their names. That's how bland they were. Well, come on. I know two of them. Parker Posey, who I've seen in so much, and yet I've never liked her in anything. Oh, really? I like Parker Posey. I do, too. And I'm like, I said Parker Posey was better than this movie. I wanted to like Parker Posey. I mean, dazed and confused. Yeah. You've got mail, Scream 3, even when she was on Boston Legal. I mean, I keep wanting to like Parker Posey, and she keeps letting me not like her. I think she's a great comedic actress, and she was in every indie movie of the 90s, so it makes sense that she would be in a movie about Hollywood. I mean, she was that girl. She's an excellent foil as Courtney Cox. I like her better than Courtney Cox, frankly. And don't forget, she's been a lot of fun to watch in those Christopher Guest movies. She has been, yes. See, Arnie? I'm not a Guest fan. Marjorie is. Parker Posey is better than this movie. This is a paycheck so she can do her indie movies. But did you like her in this movie? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was mildly funny, you know, mocking the Gail Weathers character and the kind of way she was, like, so intent on being her shadow. But the thing is, is Gail Weathers is inherently unlikable. Here's my thing is, with Parker Posey lampooning Gail, it kind of worked for me. I thought those were some good energy scenes. I thought it made Courtney Cox a better character than she was in Scream 2 to see her faced with this fictitious reality of herself that she had a hand in creating. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, I don't know. Parker Posey just never works for me. Her deliveries, her kind of wrinkled nose like she always is smelling a fart. She has something with her mouth and teeth that is very peculiar to her. And it distracts me. And she has a little bit of a lisp. I liked their interplay, but I just, I've never liked Parker Posey in anything. She just has something that turns me off. Okay. Well, again, I bring up the fact that this is now a self-parody. They are parodying themselves. Do you think part of your problem is that you don't want Gail to be mocked? Or do you have a problem with her being mocked? Or do you have just a problem with her being mocked by Parker Posey? I don't like that this film takes place on the set of basically the first film. I don't like how it's Wes Craven's new nightmare. All of a sudden, we've gone from watching a movie set in reality to watching a movie set on a movie set based on the reality. It's too meta for me, and this could work. I mean, I like the end of Get Shorty, (laughs) if that makes sense in this context. Mm -hmm. But 
I don't feel that they were as smart about it here. It just felt like I think Kevin Williamson has a deft enough pen that if he devoted his time to it, he could have made this work. Kruger kind of hacked it up. I just don't think it was as smart as it needed to be to get away with this conceit. It does seem like this has been done before and it is still being done because there was that Bruce Campbell movie. My name is Bruce. Yes. It kind of, that's a little bit different, but Stuart, I hadn't thought of it until you said it, but yeah, this is seed of Chucky all over again and not in a good way. Uh, absolutely. And I think we're going to be on the same camps opposing each other here. Like, I like that they go here. I love the fact that they're on the set of a sequel to an original that hasn't even been done yet. Like, that to me is such a, a perfect statement about the horror movie industry, about how maybe originally the first one is based on a true story, but then they just start making up the story, you know, and diverging from it just so they can cash in on it. I think the fact that they're making Stab 3 before there has been a third series of murders is perfect, and I think there's a lot of fun here if you want to go with parody. It does kind of suck for you if you're hoping that this will return to the scares and the suspense of the original screen, but I've always felt the series had one foot in camp, and so I feel like I can go with it, knowing that Nev doesn't want to come back and make the movie that as it originally was. I, I can go with this new Dewey and Gale comedy Hollywood send-up. What I do like is the way that the script for Stab 3 is used as a reason why the murders happen in the way they happen, is that the killer is following that script. That works better for me than the killer is following people randomly named the same as the people from the first film. I agree. I agree. I do like that, too. And then they make jokes about what they went through making the second one by saying, well, there's different versions of the script that leaked on the Internet. And so they kind of know who's next, but they don't know exactly who's next. So we got all of these starlet harpy characters that could or could not get it. Something else they say, though, in this is that they're getting new pages every day. I got to tell you, they started this without a completed script because they didn't use Williamson's draft. They were writing this as they were making it. And it kind of has that feel, doesn't it? Like, they don't know who the main character is anymore. They want it to be Nev, but Nev won't give them the time. You keep saying that Courtney and David are the stars, but yet I never really feel the focus is on them. They're the ones who are introduced first on the set. We've got... Dewey now as Parker Posey's advisor slash boyfriend in a very weird thing because she's... I like that. I love the fact that there's always been a love-hate relationship between Gail and Dewey and that they always kind of want to get together, but circumstances prevent it. You know, in the last one, it was what she had written in the book was so offensive that he walked away. And in this one, I, I love the fact that her double has brought him in basically so that she can call him for details to play the character. I, I think that works. I think it's a good love triangle. I always liked Dewey in the first two. Here, it seems like we're not getting quite the same lovable doofus vibe. No, we're not getting that aw shucks kind of sweet, wants to be a big cop kind of guy. I did love Putty, Patrick Warburton, as the Hollywood bodyguard calling him Dewdrop. And I wish that he would have not gotten killed, so there would have been that little bit of play to play off of Dewey's little Barney Fifeness. Plus, I just love Patrick Warburton, but I, I just... I kind of missed the old Dewey, and there wasn't the Western theme every time he walked on screen, which I liked. I like David Arquette, though. Well, in a few movies. 
I'm not much of an Arquette fan, but I have been won over in this series. And I think that although I thought it was strange that he survived the last movie, I think it was the right choice because we needed both him and Gail here. I like them. I like the way that they're experiencing their own remakes of themselves by Hollywood standards. I mean, they are, like everyone here, poisoned by Hollywood. Dewey used to be sweet, but now he's been corrupted. And I think it works. He's been corrupted by his Gale lookalike and by fame. And he's no longer the sweet Woodsboro guy. He's gone Hollywood. It makes sense. But it is kind of sweet how Courtney Cox and David Arquette met on one and got married between two and three, and their characters were also off and on in love, and I kind of like that. I'm tired of seeing them court every film. Yeah. It's three times now that they start off kind of adversarial and end up in each other's arms. I did find it sweet at the end when he proposes to her, and he's like, it'll never work, but let's try, and I kind of couldn't help but think, yep, it didn't work, because they are now separated, but... I just really felt like I didn't need to see that again. I would have liked to have seen something else new to the dynamic that I didn't feel we got. I have one big question, though. What the hell happened to Courtney Cox between two and three? I don't even want to touch the hair because it's like Betty Page bangs cut by a blind person. And then she just looks she's so damn thin. She looks terrible. She's, Um, She's so gaunt and pale and just icky. Uh, ear fetishist might enjoy the haircut she has here because it's like every scene I'm like, well, there's ears. <laughs> oh my God. Those ears are horrendous. <laughs> I was not aware of how prominent Courtney Cox ears were until this movie. So there you go. I also, I don't think that Gail had much to do in this film. Stuart, you said that Gail didn't have much to do in two. At least in two, she was again investigating the murder. She was hawking her book. She was hawking her film. She's become Lisa Givens. That's what I love about this. Like each step forward in her career actually is sinking deeper into the pit, into the cesspool. She was a local journalist kind of person in the first one. Now she's a published author in part two. And in three, she's reached the pinnacle of entertainment journalism and it's horrible and i think her investigating the murders is like her returning to her roots and shedding some of that i do i think she's the star of the movie series now i just didn't feel like she was investigating enough so much as everybody in this film was just going along for the ride you know i didn't feel like she was being proactive the way she was in two well it's sloppily told at times and i agree with you it's not a perfect version of that, but she's as close to we have to a main character as anyone. Nev is clearly taking a back seat, and it fits for that character and what they're trying to do. And I don't know. I've enjoyed Gail sort of as a foil for Nev in the past two films. I think it's interesting to make her the focus and Nev the background character. They flipped, but then they flip back for the second half of the movie. <laughs> Not really. I feel like Nev, even when she returns to the movie, is not a dynamic presence. I would have liked this better if the final showdown might have been between Roman and Gale, or if the killer didn't have a tie to Sydney's mom, but actually to Gale. Maybe Gale and Sydney are sisters, something. If Gale is the star of this film, Gale needs to be the one in the final showdown, and she's not. It really gives this film a confused feeling to me. I like Gale and Dewey the best here. I think they are the stars. Here's the problem is I don't think they work as stars, though, because the focus really isn't on them any more than it has been. It feels like they're trying to just go starless and have a complete ensemble piece, whereas in the past it was Nev. 
So we get Dewey and Gale having as much of a story as they've ever had, but they really try to bring in these surrogate characters to beef it up a little bit more and to have this whole on-studio drama bit. And I don't think it's believable at all that Dewey, little Woodsboro Dewey, who didn't want to leave Woodsboro, and so that's why Gale left him, is now in Hollywood. He went Hollywood. But they all have, and 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 so and this series has, and these characters have entered pop iconography, and and that's what they're talking about now. This is a movie with Hollywood savaging itself. It's no longer about horror movies. It's about Hollywood. I mean, it's the opening shot is of the sign from a helicopter. It feels fitting for a trilogy. It feels the most epic and most ambitious of the three. Listen, here's the moment when I knew this Hollywood shit wasn't working for me. A completely pointless Jay and Silent Bob cameo. What the hell was that? Miramax congratulating itself. I, I agree with you. Sometimes these things don't work. And that is the Britney Spears joke of this one. I mean, it is when they go too far. There's lots of jokes that don't hit for me. That At one point, Dewey and Gail are eating in a restaurant. And the name of the restaurant is West Hollywood Exclusive Restaurant. Well, that's not very funny at all. I feel like, yeah, sometimes their jokes are on point and sometimes they're not. But we've definitely entered the realm of comedy. It's the same world that Chucky went to for his fifth installment. Did you like any of these characters? I mean, we have Sarah Darling, played by Jenny McCarthy. Okay, I have a question. Was she in there? Was that a cameo or a job? That was a job. Okay. But there was Sarah Darling, who I just hate that name. Yeah, that's... Sarah Darling! Cliché. Tom Prince, Tyson Fox, Angelina Tyler. These people, they're, they're all kind of like... Mickey in the last one, right? They're not in it enough for me to ever care about them. And I know them more by the character that they're playing in Stab than by their actual character names. I don't think you're meant to like these characters. I think, again, I'll say it again. We're now entering self-parody. We're, they're meant to be contemptible. It's more what happens in a traditional slasher movie. We have a bunch of different types that we don't like. And we are meant to at least kind of enjoy that they're getting their just desserts for being ambitious or greedy or what happens. Have you? I don't like Jenny McCarthy at all, but I do like the way that she goes out. I think there's a lot of good jokes in it. You know, when she is in her director's office and the whole bit about her knocking over her director's music video award while she's waiting for him to come and it's decapitated and he thinks it's a sign that he's the next victim. And I mean, it just says a lot about the cheapness of music video awards. <laughs> I mean, it just her, her dizziness, all of it. I feel like there's a lot of information being conveyed here and I, I enjoy it. I don't know. It's a different movie at this point. I can recognize that fans of Scream probably aren't so happy to see it become so jokey, but I kind of dig it. There's some cleverness here. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to call it suspense, but when she's hiding in the closet full of Ghostface costumes and someone's coming to the door and it ends up being a security guard and Ghostface is in the closet with her and the rubber knife and all of that, I don't know. I felt like these kills were more clever and exciting than anything in the last movie. I feel we've made a step up. I feel like the smart ratio has gone higher since the last movie. See, and I completely disagreed. When I saw the room full of ghost faces, I'm like, yep, one of them's real. Yeah, that that's a classic horror movie scene where they're hiding and the killer's in there hiding in the same room as something that they're standing next to. Right. We want this series to call out the cliches. I mean, we want them to go there. I feel like that's what it's about, right? They pulled it out too soon, though, I think. With that, I don't think they built up the suspense enough to make you think it wasn't just security guard came to the door, which you thought it was him coming to the door. And then that was just a confirmation that you already knew that he was hanging in the 
costumes waiting for her. So they could have played with it a little bit more and made him more do a cat and mouse game in there. But instead, she just gets shoved right through the door in the little cart really quickly. You know what I think? I think this can be summed up. Scream was a movie for smart horror fans. Scream 3 is a movie for horror movie makers. As you know, I have no Hollywood aspirations. I don't enjoy this as much as I do something that relates more to the average movie goer who sees a lot of movies the way Scream 1 did. Now, you know, it takes it to the, another level of Hollywood parody that I just I can't relate to. I don't enjoy. I you know, intentionally don't watch shows like Entertainment Tonight and all these gossip rags to avoid the kind of shit that they're parodying here. I just try to shut that out of my life. Well, agreed, as well you should. And again, I said it in Seed of Chucky, I'll say it here. Maybe it's the fact that I live in L.A. that these jokes hit better for me than it does for you guys. I don't know, but I, I do. I feel like Scream 3 is an improvement, at least on the entertainment level. Not as a horror movie, but from the comedy perspective, from the last movie. I don't go to Scream wanting yucks. Well, sure you do. You want That's always been an element of it. You can't deny that there hasn't always been a goofy, funny, ironic. You know, there has, but it's been usually a bit more action horror oriented, whereas here it feels like the horror is a backseat. One of the rules of the sequel was that the kills were always bigger. Here, I also don't like the fact that Ghostface is mixing it up. He's blowing up houses... Yeah, I didn't like that. Yeah, and I think that the number one cardinal rule of any horror movie is you don't split up. And in every single movie, they've broken this rule. It's its own joke at this point. They all, as a group, like throw arms around each other and say, we'll be right back when we get into the house. That Yes. You're right. The more we talk about it, the more I'm seeing Seed of Chucky all over the place. Yeah. And I didn't like Seed of Chucky. <laughs> I like that everyone has a double. I mean, they know that as we go into this movie, we are again going to be looking for two killers. So everyone has either an alternate identity or someone that's playing themselves. You know, even the original character Marine is brought back and we find out she had an alternate identity as Rena Reynolds. What do you guys think of that whole storyline? Well, you know, when it first starts coming up, Nev is alone up in the Hollywood Hills running her crisis call line. And she has visions of her mother's deceased ghost. Mm-hmm. And you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking we need Principal Hemsley back because this movie just jumped a whole pool of sharks. Yeah. <laughs> How do you interpret that? Did you think that there was actually a ghost this time? I mean, Randy's one of Randy's rules is that the killer is supernatural. Did you actually think it could be a ghost? No, because it was Hollywood, I thought it was more effects, like the voice box. I thought there was someone outside her window in mom makeup. Yep. I mean, that was where I originally thought, but the more Nev plays into the story, I even thought, considered at one point, since she wasn't there, that she actually could have been the killer, that she's gone crazy. I would have liked that better than what we get, but I don't like how they just keep adding these supernatural elements. We don't want there to be this haunting. I think it was partially the way that Wes Craven ham-handedly shows these scenes. I've seen so much Wes Craven stuff. This scene is right out of either A Nightmare on Elm Street or God Help Me, Shocker, the way that it's done. <laughs> because both of those movies have dead characters coming back in spectral form, be it Tina in the hallway or the girlfriend in the lake. So here... It's directed just like one of those. So I think that Wes is trying to sell us on there's ghosts. And Scream does not work for me as supernatural horror. 
And so I'm just like rolling my eyes. Plus, it wasn't scary. The woman who played Maureen Prescott in the first film was a model on a photograph. They brought her back and she's like vamping it up like Elvira in this makeup. Oh, no. Here's the thing. I know you don't want it to be supernatural horror and I understand that. I've always now after watching these, it's more of a Scooby-Doo type horror. Mm-hmm. That's how I feel because at the end, the killer rips off his mask and damn those meddling kids and it's not who you expected, but sometimes half who you expected and you're always let down. Oh, yeah. I mean, I agree with, except for the let down part. I mean, I, I feel like, yeah, it is going to try to trick you into thinking it's supernatural when it, really there is a semi-logical basis. There, or there's a, no a, logic a, in this. A semi-basis in reality, a, in its own reality. Okay, here's the thing. I think that if my mom cheated on my dad and then was killed by this guy she cheated with, and then that family has this vendetta against my family for some unknown reason. I don't really think they'd go to these lengths to kill me or torture my family. Wouldn't they just wait outside my house and just shoot me when I'm walking out to get the mail? But I think part of the whole thing is they don't know where she is anymore. She's in hiding. They need to yeah. pull her out of hiding. They could have shot her a long time ago. And she is another character that has an alternate identity. I love that about Nev. They've finally given her grumpiness something worthwhile here. I, I like the call center idea. I like the idea that she's withdrawn behind a gate with a guard dog where in Monterey with no one able to find her and that she has to make the decision to come down from the hills to go face it in Hollywood. I think that is a more satisfying arc for her than it was in the last movie where she really was going to be an actress and was trying to apply Greek tragedy to her own life. That didn't work. I don't think this necessarily worked for me either though because when she does come out of the hills it's like she suddenly becomes the focus of the script that went for a full hour without her except in like cameo format talking to ghosts i also don't like the fact that the ghosts were in her head and we're left at certain points wondering what is in her head and what's not when she's running through the sets and there's a talking body bag again straight out of nightmare one is that in her head is that ghost face under some burlap we never know and i just think this is a ghost of the original film it's a specter of what it once was it's a mess. It is messy. I'll give you that. I, I, I can't deny that. And I do think it is unfortunate that they don't have rules to define what is her craziness and what is her real flesh and blood person out to get her. But I feel like, I don't know, I love the idea of her re-experiencing the original by being on the set. I thought that was a great scene. I liked that. I did. I liked the playing with it where she's back in her bedroom and she's having that moment. I did like that. That was one of the few Hollywood things that worked for me because mm -hmm. it was a way to bring her back home and yet continue in moving forward. The only thing I didn't like was the Creed poster. She was no Creed fan. <laughs> <laughs> no one's a Creed fan. <laughs> Not by 2000. Actually, by 2000, they still did have fans. Here, no, here's what's funny is Creed had a song on the Scream 3 soundtrack. Oh, I heard it. I so was aware. that's why there's a Creed poster. That was the one time I was screaming. <laughs> you mentioned horror rules. Ah, I had a hard time with the horror rules this time. Randy returns from the grave in video cassette form and the form of a sister we'd never heard of mentioned before. It's Wiener Dog from Welcome to the Dollhouse. See, thank you. I love Welcome to the Dollhouse. Never seen it. She's pretty memorable if you have seen the movie. Yeah. And again, it's a Miramax thing. I feel like Miramax is dragging out all their friends for cameos here. I really think this is the sign they never should have killed Randy if they have to bring him back in videotape form. We're in Hollywood. Couldn't we have somebody else play the film geek? Did we have to bring Randy back on tape? 
Yes. I totally agree with you. And I feel like this was done to placate fans that people wanted to see Jamie Kennedy. So we get Jamie Kennedy. But there was a character there to do it. There was a black actor named Tyson Fox who was playing Ridley in Sab 3. He's going to be essentially, they call out that he's the ripoff of Randy character in that. Why not have him be the rules? Well, the reason is that fans demand that we have just one more moment with Jamie Kennedy. And honestly, I didn't need it, particularly since it comes about so implausibly. It is a misstep. And his rules of the trilogy never really play out. Well, I mean, what they're trying to say, I mean, they they have half explanations. Here are the rules for a trilogy. The killer has to be superhuman. Stabbing or shooting won't be enough to finish him off. It turns out it is. They shoot him in the head and he's dead. Anyone, including the main character, can die. Only Cotton Weary is a returning character to die. (laughs) Three, the past will come back to haunt you. Literally, there's a ghost. Well, that is true. And I, you know what? I, I think that is the part that I really do appreciate is the way that they try to tie this all back to what originally happened with Maureen. And having been Rena Reynolds in Hollywood so many decades prior, I, I feel like it explains things. You guys have always complained, Marjorie particularly, that you didn't understand where her sluttiness came in, why she was being a slut. Well, now we know it was Hollywood. <laughs> Spent a couple of years in Hollywood and it changes your morals. But they went a long way to get there and it was not a good payoff i felt so so you didn't like it at all no i thought it felt very convenient and it was kind of like okay we're gonna do this meta movie in a movie kind of thing and oh by the way this woman who'd been cheating on her husband and sleeping all over town she was destroyed by hollywood so are they trying to say hollywood's bad it was just i don't know i just i don't think it paid off i don't think they spent enough time on it and when oh i think they spent too much goddamn time well they did oh i mean they didn't develop it well because all you got out of it was that old guy don't remember his name played by lance hendrickson yeah that they had fucked her three ways to sunday I, i mean maybe i'm just more steeped in like the hollywood babylon kind of lore and stuff but i love that kind of stuff i love reading those stories about the debauchery of 60s 70s hollywood you know the manson murders and like just all of that kind of stuff i love that they go here and i love that it's all rooted to the fact that she went back and had a fleeting career with a roger corman type i think that's a good way of dealing with the history of horror movies and bringing it close to this series i really liked i was surprised at how well it worked for me but i think this goes back to arnie saying that this seems to be made for a hollywood movie producer a horror movie maker where they're going to appreciate these little things like that and you live in la and you work in the business and all that so you kind of understand that and get it you are steeped in that being out there and here we're not in that world and it's just kind of like okay whoop-de-doo so she had to screw to get a job it happens and I am somewhat familiar with that whole party culture from the 60s and 70s. I've read about it. You know, you hear about it. I kind of like that. But by the same token, isn't it awfully convenient that Rita Reynolds wanted to be Hollywood and yet her biggest fame in Hollywood is as the dead mother of the Stab series? Well, you know, it's like the dominoes had to fall for all this to happen. Gail Weathers had to write the book that had to be a hit to cause the movie to be a hit to cause Stab 3 to happen so we can find out that Rita Reynolds was always from Hollywood. If something in Rita Reynolds past, if the Lance Hendrickson character had optioned Gail's book because he knew it was about Rena Reynolds. It might have played better for me, but as it is, Milton says the studio came to him. So it's just happenstance instead of causality. 
That detail of it is, yes. It just seemed, again, really convenient. We're in Hollywood, and her backstory just so happens to be in Hollywood. How lucky we're standing here. Well, I think part of the reason why they don't go into that more is Milton is our biggest suspect at this point. As the dominoes are falling and cast members are being killed off, and we know every cast member is on the chopping block, including Gail. They've written it so that Gail is going to die in Scream 3, so Parker Posey and or Courtney Cox could be getting it as well. We think that the one masterminded is the one that's been funding these horror movies all the time. It's John Milton. It's Lance Hendrickson. I think that's why we don't spend more time with him as a character. We really only get one good scene with him in an office. And I honestly never considered him a suspect. A no. What? No. What? He is the suspect. But there's not enough time on him. They spend even more time with Mickey last time than they do with Lance Hendrickson here. I understand he's supposed to be the suspect, but I never bought into it. The film did not even on my first viewing, convinced me because we didn't have enough time with him. We didn't have him set up well enough. Can I just say as a side note, I love the diving board outside his window. I thought that was hilarious. And just another funny little Hollywood detail. Yeah, that was really odd. I saw that and I'm like, huh, that's kind of (laughs) neat. Just in case you have a bad day, I'm just going to go kill myself. (laughs) I wanted one. (laughs) But we also have a new character in the form of Patrick Dempsey. And I got to say, when I saw this movie in theaters, I couldn't believe they'd pulled Patrick Dempsey out of mothballs. Remember, this was pre-Grey's Anatomy McDreamy Patrick Dempsey. And this is post-plastic surgery Patrick Dempsey because he is not Donald Miller any longer. I think, honestly, the last thing I had seen him in was with honors like six years earlier. Spend some time in the gym, get a nose job, and all of a sudden you're McDreamy. I don't have a whole lot to say about Patrick Dempsey. I've never watched his shows or movies. I don't really know You've who he is. You've never seen Can't Buy Me Love? Long time ago. Oh, Here, here's the sweet. thing. D- Dempsey is always the geek. And so to see him here as the movie-obsessed cop in Hollywood, I was thrown by it initially. You know, Now if you see it and he's the hunky cop, you go, yeah, because you've got Grey's Anatomy in your head. But in 2000, that was like a shovel to the forehead. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know that he's the hunky cop. He is the mysterious cop. I mean, he's a suspect. We think since he's the one kind of doing the investigation, he is the other logical one. If it's not Milton and if it's not Nev herself, then it's got to be this guy. These are our three prime suspects, right? I did think of him as a major suspect. He's movie obsessed. He's a cop. I never thought it was Nev herself. I never thought that once. And I never even thought that that was a plausibility until you mentioned it. And I see, all right, maybe. That would have been a nicer twist than what we get. But I did think Kincaid was a possibility, especially since it's Patrick Dempsey. And he's got a double. He's got this partner that's floating around that we never get to know about. And that's suspicious. I really didn't put too much thought into who was the killer because I figured I would not be able to figure out the tangential connection. So... But then we have the showdown at Milton's house, this nice Hollywood mansion. It felt very Clue to me at times. They're running through their secret passageways. They're running as a group. It just reminded me of that old 80s movie Clue. I love it. And I love that it's really calling back to, yeah, drawing room murder mysteries. Like, it really has gone back to that. This movie has returned to its origins. And and that's satisfying. I don't know. I think by this point, the movie had lost me. It's getting to the climax. The best scene for me was Sydney getting attacked on the set. But other than that, I just I hadn't been engaged. And so when we're here, I'm kind of like, let's get through it. (laughs) Pick them off and let's get going. Find out who the killer is. 
Yeah, I agree. I'm ready for the end to happen and the killer to be revealed. And we get it. You know, they have to kill off the last remaining starlets. There's the woman that won the contest. That and what are the what's? It's kind of a dumb name. What Angelina? What Angelina Tyler? Okay, Liv Tyler and Angelina Jolie. I, whatever. You know. Except those two are sexy, and Angelina Tyler, Emily Mortimer, not. No, she's kind of frightening. <laughs> I like Emily Mortimer and the things I've seen her in, but uh, she's not, yeah, glamour. She does play a mousy type, but we see a different side to her. You know, she's supposedly got this job because Tori Spelling won't come back to do Stab 3. They have a contest and they find for Angelina Tyler as this innocent from the Midwest girl to play Sydney. But in fact, we find out she slept with the director for the part. I mean, everyone here does have a dark side. Everyone does play into the worst cynicism about Hollywood here. And in fact, that cynicism is personified in a cameo by Carrie Fisher. Yeah, I didn't need this either. No. No, I don't understand that. It was just pointless and... Well, the fact that she is the child of Hollywood royalty dishing on all the old Hollywood gossip that she probably really does have. Do you think Carrie Fisher's cameo was because... This whole movie's twist is the lost sibling, like Return of the Jedi. Carrie Fisher's Luke's sister. Here we have Roman, Sydney's lost brother. Yeah, I'm sure that's why Carrie Fisher decided to take a cameo. I'm glad you agree. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, she looks for cameos with long lost siblings. Scott Foley, who would work with Courtney Cox twice more, both on Scrubs and then later on Cougar Town. And he is Roman, the director of Stab 3, getting drunk, upset that Stab 3 has been canceled. His directorial debut, I believe, right? Yes. He's the one that won the music video. So, you know, again, another parody. Roman Coppola is Francis Ford Coppola's kid. And he's tried to have a movie career, not too successfully, in a music video career. Eh, This is who they're savaging. Never heard of Roman Coppola, so I didn't realize that at all. You know, you see, like... David Fincher or Mick G or all these people who start with music videos and move on to features. I just thought it was a jab at them. <laughs> now, question. Is Roman Milton's kid? I... He doesn't know who his daddy is. Yeah. Okay. I kind of thought it might be. I kind of thought that would be. I honestly, when watching it this time, I kind of knew the twist about the mother. I thought Milton might be Sydney's real father. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that Sydney's father was Sydney's father, but could Milton have been Roman's father? Possibly, but I think Sydney's mom was such a hoe that God only knows which sperm hit that egg. No, yeah, but I guess his relationship with Milton, because Milton is his boss and is the one that gave him the gig for Stab 3, and he was coming to the birthday party. This All this thing is happening at the mansion because it is Roman's birthday. I felt like they half implied that Roman accepted Milton as his dad, but it's never said. It could be. They have different last names. Yeah. God only knows where Roman got the last name Bridger because it's not. Prescott, it's not Milton, it's not anything. And who raised Roman? We don't even know that, right? No, yeah, that's what I mean. It's all very confusing. I thought he was just given up for adoption. Maybe, but I wondered if, because, again, Sydney's mom was screwing producers, if Milton was somebody's father, but it's never brought through. But Roman is our ghostface killer working alone, and... Not working alone! He's the third killer. Well, yes... It's Scream 3, and there are three killers. Two that we already knew, and him. Billy and Stu, you're saying, right? Yep. Because they retcon that he mentored Billy to kill Sydney's mother. Do you like that? I don't. No. I do. 
I think that's a funny take on directing. I mean, if the first movie was about screenwriters being the killer, this one is about the director being the killer. And he directed them to do it. He manipulated the events to ensure that this would occur. I thought it was clever. Again, this is an elaborate plot to kill somebody that can only exist in a movie. Yep. Because real killers are not this creative. I agree. This is the screen world. This is not our world. And it has become more and more insular. The difference between our world and this world has become more and more obvious as it caves in on itself and becomes isolated. This whole plot is very soap opera. <laughs> this whole trilogy reminds me of soap operas and the Brady's and the Hortons and Stefano Demera and all of this. It's all very soap opera where something happens, but they conveniently can tie it back to something else and say, aha, this is how it all ties in. And it's a cheap screenwriting trick that they do. I don't like this. It's bad when they do this. I mean, I, th I think you got to go with it. I mean, you guys seem to be resistant because it's not plausible. But this has never been about plausible. I think it's a cheap tactic that they use where something happens. You know the killers died, and you know why they did it. And then they make a sequel, and they say, Aha, this is why we did it, because now it's his mom, and she recruited someone else to help out. And then you're like, all right, whatever. So then you get to the next one, and they're like, oh, wait, there's a long-lost brother you never knew about that was never, ever mentioned. And he trained the original killers, so this all goes back to him. And you've never heard about this whatsoever. The Hollywood career of the mother never even hinted at in the other movies. It's lazy, and it's bad. I think that they just really sold out on this one. Well, I'm just going to throw it out there. Do you have the problem with the same histrionics and family dynamics in Star Wars? Oh, yeah. It's, it's kind of similar. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I do. I, I, you know, I love Star Wars, but there are problems with it. By the same token, Star Wars sets it up. This movie's making it up as it goes along. Star Wars has the drop lines in the first one about the father. The second one, Luke, I am your father. The third one, oh, by the way, I'm also your sister. Yeah, that, that's a problem. But it sets it up more here. They're not even going with the same screenwriter. They saw what Williamson wrote, didn't like it. This is what they came up with. And you know what? I'm not completely opposed to this going back and tying it together. I just don't think Billy and Stu needed a mentor. They were fine in the first one. They were the best killers of the Scream series. I don't think we needed Scott Foley hiding in the wings. If they had a mentor, it should have been somebody who would have been around. Scott Foley, he left Hollywood to go to Woodsboro three or four years earlier to start killings, and then he went back to Hollywood to pursue directing, and then he's now back to murders. It doesn't make sense. I agree. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It makes movie sense. It's no, it does not make movie sense, because you always say the movies have to have their own logic that we can go with. This does not follow any logic. In the movies or anybody else's that he's taking these breaks. He got Billy and Stu started, and then he sat back. Was he involved with Mrs. Loomis in part two also. It's not said, but you know, I almost would have gone with it more if he and Mrs. Loomis had teamed up together way back when. Mrs. Loomis came and got him or some shit like that. But as it is, it makes no fucking sense. And they made this up as they went along as well. Because of the internet thing, they filmed three different endings and decided which one to go with. In this, Ernie, uh, so much that you can't blame the movie because of what you know about the making of it. I can because the screenwriter is writing in the film about what a mess of a film they're making, saying there's new pages every day. It's so self-referential. Jenny McCarthy says, I have two scenes and I die in the second one when she dies in her second scene. The filmmakers are telling us the behind the scenes. I don't need to listen to the fucking commentary. The film is the fucking commentary. Yeah, but I enjoyed that. I, I feel like, yeah, 
that's on point. That's what Scream has always been about. It's calling out its own weaknesses and it making didn't them- in the first one. No, mm-hmm. in the first one, it called out the weaknesses of its genre, not the weaknesses of itself. Mm, okay. The thing is, with the first one, though, when they mention the weaknesses of the genre, they then intelligently play off of those weaknesses. When they're mentioning that the script is unfinished while they're shooting, there's no way to turn that on its ear and suddenly make that smart. Well, they do, though. It's the reason why we don't know who the next one to be killed is, because there's different versions of the script floating around. I I disagree. I, I appreciate all of that self-referential stuff. I actually think it adds to the movie. And, and there are many movies I bet you love that were made just this is chaotically. Jaws was made without a finished script. I mean, you can't say that. And there were different screenwriters that worked on Return of the Jedi and Empire Strikes Back than Star Wars. I mean, this is how Hollywood movies are made. I, I don't think you can hold up the fact that Aaron Kruger came in as a smoking gun, that this series has fallen apart, and that it would have been fine if Williamson had been involved. That doesn't hold water. I could say that I liked Williamson's screams better than Kruger's screams. And if Williamson wasn't returning for Scream 4, neither would Arnie. Oh, wow. I, I doubt that because we, <laughs> we, have a, we have a completist mentality here. There is no sequel they could make that we won't follow to its darkest end here. But I disagree. I feel like Aaron Kruger probably did find an interesting take here when no one could quite figure out what, where to go for a series that I can admit probably could have and maybe should have stopped with the original. There's no real reason to have gone beyond Scream other than money. But since they had to do it, I like that they've made an attempt to tell a tightly woven trilogy instead of copycat sequels. I like that. I appreciate the effort. They tried. I think you're being awful generous calling it tightly woven. You know what, though? They brought back Sidney's father for a brief moment in this film. They brought back Billy's father for a brief moment. I would have preferred the killer to somehow tie into one of those returning characters from Woodsboro to give it that movie logic. As it is, you say it has movie logic. I say it doesn't. Okay. Well, you know, I forget. Did you like Halloween H2O? Yeah, I kind of did. I believe I recommended it. Okay. That was another sequel that I felt was totally unnecessary, but I could accept it on its own premise. And I think I'm giving it the same pass here for Scream 3 that I did for H2O. I guess my problem is, you know, I could give it a pass if it was told in a more entertaining way, but I'm stuck with exploding houses, Hollywood self-referentialism, Jay and Silly Bob, and all of this. And it's just nothing is clicking for me. I could give this film this killer and this conceit if the rest of the movie had worked for me. But by the time we get to the unmasking, I'm checking my watch. I think it's unfortunate that the kills towards the end weren't better. I think that is a problem that they had totally given up on suspense and horror at this point, And it's just become silly. And like you said, it's almost like Clue. It's just slapstick slasher at this point. And then the final fight between Sydney and Roman, yeah, just it, it wasn't exciting for mm-hmm. me. I think it was quick. It was pretty quick. I think that Craven, you know, we really applauded his directing in Scream 1. I think he's kind of, he doesn't want to be here. He wants to be off, you know, with his violin movie. And I think he's just kind of going through the motions. There was nothing exciting about the way these shots were set up, the way it was filmed, the way it was staged. It just felt really boring. Well, I've never liked when she has to be Linda Hamilton. And they've tried it three times now. And this one is no worse than the last two, in my impression. But... So Roman is down on the ground. He's been shot. 
Sydney picks up the ice pick and kills him in cold blood. I, she always has killed the killers, but I kind of felt here that that was a little bit much. Doesn't anybody go to jail anymore in films? <laughs> No, but they got to bring back the Sharon Stone thing. They brought up Sharon Stone so much in the original movie. I like that they brought it back to her and the ice pick killer thing from Basic Instinct. Uh, it, it worked for me. I didn't even catch the Sharon Stone thing, but yeah, good good catch there. I mean, I always think Basic Instinct, but I forgot that they referenced Sharon Stone in the first one. Three times. I, so much that I was disappointed Sharon Stone didn't actually cameo in part three. She would have done it at this point. But would she have shaved her vagina? Ew. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. <laughs> wow. Leave it to Arnie. Mm. Well, we talked with Scream 2 about how I read the original script and there was that alternate ending that they wanted to go with and didn't. Here, there was also an alternate ending that Kruger, Craven, everybody wanted except the producers at Miramax who they squashed. There was again going to be two killers. It was going to be Roman and Roman had teamed up with Angelina Tyler and he, that was his accomplice why was she trying to elevate her stardom she was going to be roman's girlfriend and they do tie it back to woodsboro she was going to be a classmates of sydney's in the time period of the original scream again cheating so the killers and with the s would have been cheating and right now it was just one that cheated they were going to make it even bigger cheating you know what would have been better is they brought back the actress who played sydney's mom in a single scene what if they brought back like one of the bitchy girls from the bathroom then it wouldn't have been cheating it really would have been one of sydney's classmates it still would have been cheating because they have no vendetta against her whatsoever it would have been an undeveloped hatred as we've gotten with Roman that we never saw before. That's the movie logic. I mean, a lot of times, like, killers act because of blood betrayal. And I just feel like you didn't like the movie, Marjorie, and now you're finding reasons to not like it. If you had enjoyed the killings, if you enjoyed the horror aspect of it, you probably could go with the soap opera. But because it's the opposite... I think you're blaming the soap opera. Star Wars is my go-to reference here. You go with it in Star Wars because you enjoy the movie. You didn't go with it here because you didn't enjoy the movie. But I think that if the kills were better and it was more of a horror movie and it was somewhat plausible that they established the killer and everything or the killers, yeah, I could go with it. I mean, I can totally go with Jason getting his head cut off and coming back and killing more because he's supernatural. This is just... They keep finding these tangential links that... No, so you're basically know. agreeing with Stuart. Had the movie been better overall, you would have given it the conceit. You would have rolled your yeah. eyes, but you would have still enjoyed the movie. Yeah, but it, it just wasn't a good movie in my opinion, so... I do like her final scene, though. I do like that they kind of allow this character to finally have the option to give up her anguish and her standoffishness and change the genre of the movie of her life. However, I think it's unfounded because I think she's got to worry about like her mother's old housekeeper coming out <laughs> and trying to kill her because at this point it's really getting crazy as far as who's trying to kill her. Maybe the gardener's mad or the mailman in the in part four. And maybe they all screwed her mother. Yes. Her mom had a bisexual love affair with the housekeeper. <laughs> And the housekeeper's mad because her mom went back to being straight. That's the killer in four. Here's the best thing about Scream 3 is that they're telling us it's over. There's not going to be a Scream 4. She can leave the door open. It was a trilogy and we're done and we're not going to take any more of your money to watch any more of this tripe. I'm sorry. Could you repeat right. that? Because I think. That's yeah, that's the yeah. problem is here we are 11 years later in preparation of Scream 4. 
coming out today. <laughs> yes, that's true. And I guess we'll have to wait for what next week to see if it works and if we recommend it. But I, for now, Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend Scream 3? Absolutely not. This movie is not good. It tries to be funny. It's not funny. You're just going to get irritated and end up wondering, oh, my God, is this over yet? A lot of it is Hollywood in jokes. I'm not in Hollywood. I don't work in Hollywood. It's not a good story. It's her mom's long lost son. Where the hell did that come from? Nowhere. Again, it's it's a Scooby-Doo horror movie that was poorly executed. So not recommend. It is a strong not recommend. Stuart. <laughs> For in a completely different take, I'm going to say that I think that not only do I recommend Scream 3, this is the most successful horror franchise I've ever reviewed for Now Playing. Oh. I, I have never seen a series where I have given three recommends in a row in a horror series. And that's quite a thing to put on screen for it. This could be 100%. I, this could be the best horror series we've ever done. That said, I'm not going to say that any of these are better than the original Halloween, but they're close. I mean, I feel like the original was great, and I feel like the two and three are passable. And if they can at least keep up that level of quality for four, Scream will win. Scream will be the best series I've ever done that's horror for now playing. So, recommend. I don't know. I think four has hope because the people want to be there again. I felt watching this film originally and now that we see people going through the motions and just walking through their parts and not wanting to be there. And it makes me as an audience member not want to be there. The people who want to be there are the new characters like Parker Posey and Jenny McCarthy and Emily Mortimer, all of whom are new to the franchise and happy to be there. But there's no killer who I can follow time to time. There's no victims who I like that continue going on. I just I feel like this was a cash grab, a contractual obligation, and there's no fun in this movie to be had either from a horror perspective or a comedy perspective. The Hollywood jokes at this point weren't even all that new. I mentioned Get Shorty earlier in the podcast. This whole thing has a been there, done that feel to it. And in the end, I was bored by it. I really was. I wasn't enthralled. I wasn't entertained. So no, I don't recommend this one. Not as strong of a not recommend as Marjorie, but I can't give this one a pass. I just can't. It it follows the rules of horror th part threes ex with that Nightmare on Elm Street is the sole exception to, I think, that part threes really suck in horror series. <laughs> in general, I agree with you. I mean, I think we all can agree this movie feels bitter, but the difference is I'm saying they use that as a strength in redirecting the series, and you guys are saying you didn't want to go. Perhaps what we're saying is, Stuart, you like movies where Hollywood is sucking its own cock. <laughs> uh, that's a, okay. Uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll almost agree with that. Um, yes, I do. I like self-referential meta. I would have liked New Nightmare if it had been done well. My problem with New Nightmare wasn't that they were, went meta, it's that they did it so poorly. Here, I think Wes got it better. I will agree it's better than New Nightmare. <laughs> That's all I will give Scream 3. <laughs> well, on that note, I guess we turn towards Scream 4. I hope you guys are seeing it, enjoying it, and we'll be ready next week when we unveil our thoughts. And if you can't wait a whole week to hear our Scream 4 thoughts, if you donated $10 or more, you get to hear our thoughts of Jaws 4 next week, too. Jaws for the revenge. This time it's personal. Stuart Ian Brock may take it personally. <laughs> we take it somewhere, that's for sure. We take it to Jamaica, man, with Mario Van Peebles. 
find out by donating $10 using the donate button at the bottom of our homepage. And we will be concluding Jaws with Deep Blue Sea the week after. And if you are one of our super special donors who donated more than $10 and hit that magic number starting in May, the Poltergeist Trilogy with Marjorie Stewart and I. And we promise Marjorie won't hate on the Poltergeist the way she's hated on Scream. <laughs> yeah, you like those ones, right, Marjorie? Yeah, but here's the thing. Why Why you got to diss on me because I didn't like Scream? <laughs> so you can find that all at nowplayingpodcast.com. And thank you for your support. And again, Now Playing is and always will be free on Fridays as we return to Marvel after Scream 4 with X-Men. So find your copy of Generation X wherever you can, if there's a local comic book convention and a bootleg table, because we're going to be reviewing the TV movie Generation X. I don't know what that is, and I don't want to, but I guess I have to. It's now playing's first TV movie review. <laughs> oh, well, la-dee-da. And it's so worth it, I hope. I haven't watched it yet. We'll find out. Thanks for listening. <laughs> That'll be a wrap. The sequel discussion to be continued. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Scream Retrospective Series. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. (laughs) It was fun. (laughs) You can listen to other episodes in this series at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You like scary movies? Uh Uh-huh. If you like scary movies, then head to NowPlayingPodcast.com where you can find our retrospective reviews of other horror series, including A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Saw, and many others. More blood, more gore. Carnage candy. Your core audience just expects it. As well as individual movie reviews of The Human Centipede and others. Stop it, Billy, would you, right? I can't take any more and you're going to need a bigger iPod because those of you who donate $10 or more to Now Playing will get as our thank you the entire Jaws retrospective series. Nice twist, huh? Didn't see it coming, did you? And if the donation is high enough, you'll also get our Poltergeist retrospective series. It's all a movie. It's all one great big movie. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So where are you? I'm going to take the party out. These special thank you podcasts are only available to those who donate $10 or more by May 30th, 2011. So donate now. Don't you blame the movies. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. And while at nowplayingpodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss these films with other listeners. See, we're about love, respect, and responsibility. Harmonica style is okay, right? Oh, yeah. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes, and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. So, have I covered everything? Are there any questions, any comments? You know what, though? Who gives a flying fuck anyway? Now Playing's Scream Retrospective series is edited by Arnie and Jay. Not much of a story here, just a bunch of kids cutting it loose. The now playing Scream opening credits are performed by Jen and Arnie. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. Now playing is not affiliated with Dimension Films. The Scream films and all the Scream universe contains is the intellectual property and trademark of Dimension Films, and no infringement is intended. 
My lawyer liked that. Not as much as I did. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. Now you gotta die. Those are the rules. This is Gale Weather signing off. Now if you'll excuse me, I have some oozing to do. In the year 2000. <laughs> Please don't sing anymore. I, I can't take no more. Um, all right. It came out. I don't remember New Nightmare. You saw New Nightmare with me just a year ago. You watched it with me. Yeah, but they all kind of blend together. Let's be honest. That one is its own thing. No, I don't accept that. That one is the one where Nancy, uh, what's her name? I always call her Nancy. <laughs> Miss Heather- Langenkamp. Heather Langenkamp is playing her son. God. Oh, 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 no, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a blooper. Okay. <laughs> you know, she's playing herself and her son is being possessed by Freddy. You don't remember that? Okay, that now I do. Like- I just had to remember which one it was because this does seem like this. Knocks over his Music Vizio Award and decapitates it. I, I think I think that's funny. Do you want to say music video award again? Because you said Vizio, and I think we're going. Is that, that a word that, for That's software. a Microsoft yeah. software. <laughs> <laughs> we might get sued. Yeah. Not not only do you have to watch them, in many cases you have to watch your money being spent on them. Oh my god, yes! Because a lot of times it leads to incidental purchases where he tracks down like a Dutch version that he has to uh, pay thirty five euros for. I know. I couldn't believe you bought the box set of Man Thing. What was that about, Arnie? What was that about? I also bought a Man-Thing action figure. I'm strangely obsessed with Man-Thing at the moment. Okay. And I'm not the only one. I've had listeners say that they're on the lookout for that Man-Thing figure, too. I would be careful too. that saying in public or in on the internet that you're obsessed with Man-Thing. <laughs> that might get you some really weird fan mail. <laughs>